You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Today's reading comes from Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, and we pray for grace now to trust you more, to uh, learn from your word, to trust in the Lord Jesus, to be uh, even more full of the Spirit, to uh, evidence fruit, to have more and greater joy and contentment in you. Help us to trust you more. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, Several that I've never met. I'd love to meet you after the service. just to say hello, uh, me, my family is about to leave for Florida tomorrow for about nine days, so when we get back to meet you for coffee or for lunch. Uh, I think I may have, in a sermon once before, mentioned a Japanese soldier named Hirao Anada. Uh, in 1944, when he was 22 years old, he was sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines to carry out guerrilla and sabotage missions against the enemy, like the rest of the Japanese army. Uh, He was to surrender under no circumstances and fight to the death. Uh, When the war ended, the Japanese government uh, dropped leaflets on this island. They knew that he was there, and they dropped leaflets on many uh, islands throughout the Pacific to announce the end of the war to their soldiers. Soldiers like Onada were to surrender and then to come back to Japan. But understandably, Onada uh, thought that this was enemy propaganda, trying to trick him to come out of the jungles. 
without knowing of the devastation of the atomic bombs, he could not imagine a scenario in which the emperor would have surrendered. And without a direct order from a commanding officer, he would continue his mission of sabotage. 30 years later, in 1974, Onada encounters a Japanese guy on this island who tells him that the war is now over, but he still doesn't believe him. We're talking five years after Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, uh, four years after the Beatles had broken up. This Japanese guy takes a picture with Onada, takes the picture back to Japan where the government then tracks down Onada's former commanding officer, now a bookseller in the mid-70s, and tells him to get on a plane to fly to Lubang Island to find Onada and tell him to surrender. He finds Onada, tells him to come home. Onada, now a 52-year-old man, turns over his sword, his functioning rifle, still over 500 rounds of ammunition, several hand grenades, his dagger. Finally, 30 years after the war has had ended, Hirao Onada was committed to his mission, but he was lacking vital information that would have allowed him to then change his mission and actually live his life in freedom. In Acts 18, 19, we're going to find some folks that find themselves actually in somewhat of a similar situation. Well-intentioned folks, full of zeal and loyalty, but who were lacking vital information that would have changed the mission of their life and actually would have allowed them to live their lives in freedom. These stories that we are getting to here in Acts 18 and 19, the stories of Apollos in, at the end of Acts 18, and then John's disciples in Ephesus at the beginning of chapter 19 are very similar to each other, both structurally and thematically. But I want to highlight what seems to be perhaps Luke's emphasis in each section under two headings. Two parallel stories, but thinking through these stories under two headings, that of a fuller understanding and then a fuller life. So let's get to Apollos under a fuller understanding. In verse 24 of chapter 18, we read, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Now time out. Uh, last week, we saw that Paul, on his way out of Corinth, heading back to Jerusalem, made a pit stop in Ephesus. Paul, we saw earlier in chapter 16, had wanted to get to Ephesus but, quote, he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, Asia being the province in Turkey where Ephesus was, not talking about the modern continent of Asia as we think of. And it was entirely understandable that Paul would want to get to Ephesus. Uh, if Rome was Washington, D.C., and last week we thought of Corinth perhaps as like 1987 Miami Vice, Miami, uh, Ephesus may very well be New York City. Uh, 200,000 people living in Ephesus, a third of a million in Ephesus, making it perhaps the largest city in the Roman Empire. It was well known for its commerce and its trade, as well as its temple to the goddess Artemis or Diana. Uh, in even the, the temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was kind of like the Empire State Building of the ancient world. And we'll see the worship and influence of Artemis in Ephesus really come to a head next week at the end of chapter 19. But while Paul stayed for just a little longer in 
just for a little, a little while in Ephesus on his way out of Corinth, he told the Ephesians in verse 21, if I, or I will return to you if God wills. But while he left, uh, his tent-making friends that we met last week, of Priscilla and Aquila, they stay. They stay behind in Ephesus. These three, Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, had labored together for a year and a half in Corinth. And in Romans 16, Paul says that these two, they risked their necks. They risked their lives for Paul. We don't know what that's about, but they clearly all loved each other. And undoubtedly, this married couple had grown in their understanding of Christ and their understanding of the entirety of scriptures, of the scriptures by living and working alongside Paul for so long. But now they're, they're on their own in Ephesus, where then Apollos shows up. Luke tells us from Alexandria. Alexandria in Egypt was probably the most educated city in the entire empire. Uh, Many, many universities, many libraries in in Alexandria. I couldn't come up with a good American equivalent, maybe like Boston of the early 1900s with Harvard and MIT or something well-known for its educational institutions. And even if you didn't know anything about Alexandria or Apollos, uh, maybe the people of Ephesus might have actually guessed where he was from when they started hearing him speak. He was an eloquent man, and being Jewish, he was competent in the the Jewish scriptures. Many folks even speculate that Apollos, this guy, is the one who wrote the letter of the Hebrews, the New Testament book of the Bible of Hebrews. He was competent in the scriptures. Apparently, this guy could preach. Lots of times throughout his letters, Paul is very aware that he himself wasn't a great public speaker, but Apollos was. So much so that when Apollos, we'll see at the end of this little section, moves on to Corinth, when he gets to Corinth, there are lots of folks who receive him and are ready to move on from Paul and just kind of adopt Apollos. They want to attach themselves to the powerful preaching ministry of Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, some were saying. He had a teaching gift from the Lord. And we don't actually know what brought him here to Ephesus. Maybe he was treating it like some sort of missionary journey, like Paul. Maybe being so eloquent, he thought of himself like a traveling teacher, or like so many other contemporary philosophers of that time. But either way, here he is in Ephesus, and he goes to the synagogue, and he begins to teach, speaking boldly in the synagogue. But what is he speaking? What is he teaching? Verse 25, and being fervent in spirit, He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. This is kind of confusing. There are a couple of options for what all of this means and what he's likely teaching, but I think most likely Apollos is preaching and teaching something very similar to that which John the Baptist would have preached up until the point of Jesus' arrival on the scene, Jesus' baptism by John. So everything that John would have preached before that That is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like the prophets who came before him, John the Baptist and Apollos here were urging God's people to know God, to live righteously, to turn from wickedness, to trust in the cleansing forgiveness of God through baptism. There is one coming, John the Baptist preached. The king, the the Messiah, who will bring a separating judgment, that of death or life. It's very possible that Apollos had also heard that the Messiah had come, that Jesus had died and rose again. After all, the news of Jesus had reached Rome. We 
considered last week, so much so that the emperor Claudius had kicked out all of the Jews of, out of Rome. And it may be that his accurate teaching about Jesus, though, was actually that Jesus the Messiah was still coming, that the Messiah was to come, like John the Baptist was preaching. Either way, though, Apollos was, in one way or the other, preaching an incomplete Jesus, was preaching an incomplete salvation. He was preaching a baptism of repentance, but not a baptism that is united to Jesus, which is exactly what a Christian baptism is. When I am baptized into Christ, his life is my life. I am buried with him, and his resurrection becomes mine, spiritually now, physically later. A Christian baptism is the person saying that she, is, she belongs to the triune God. A Christian baptism is the church saying that she belongs to the triune God. The Christian, a Christian baptism is the triune God saying she belongs to me. There are three different declarations happening. I belong to God. The church saying he or she belongs to God. God saying he or she belongs to me. Baptism is not saving. Jesus saves. Baptism doesn't, but it is far more than just kind of like a, a necessary checkbox for a Christian. Almost like a wedding ceremony, it declares a new reality. That is, it is entirely appropriate to remind someone who has been baptized, but who is now straying from God, straying from Jesus in apathy or flat-out rejection, to go to that person and say, like, bro, I saw you get baptized. I was there. Don't you remember? I saw that declaration by the church, by God, by you, of saying whom you belong to. So remember who you are. Christian, if you have been baptized, remember who you are, whom you belong to, buried in the likeness of his death and raised to new life in the likeness of his resurrection. We are united with Christ. And so here was Apollos missing all of this crucial and vital information about what baptism is, about being united to Christ, perhaps preaching that Jesus had actually come, that he had actually uh, come and died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, but not being united to that. We don't know quite what the information that he was missing, but he was missing something. He was preaching a baptism of repentance, but not a baptism of power. We'll see this theme swing back around in the next section, but a baptism of, repent, of repentance, a baptism of devoted obedience to God without the power of God by his spirit, the power of his spirit living and then feeding and fueling and energizing this kind of repentance and obedience, it is just a, merely a ritual. It is not a declaration of a new reality. It's just people getting in the water, not a declaration that this person belongs to Christ. But how often are we just in the same boat? Like tomorrow, Monday, it's a new week, and I'm already bummed out. I'm already discouraged by my lack of faith, by my lack of obedience. And come on, Nathan, this is the week to get it together. Do better. Try harder. You failed again, which means, well, 
I don't know what it means. Maybe it means that you actually aren't united to Christ in the first place. Just start over. Now in a new square one of repentance. No. That's the same kind of religion of works and acceptance that the Ephesians here are trying to manipulate Artemis into. That of manipulating the gods to accept you because of your effort, because of your works. The gospel says that, yes, there is effort, but it is a grace-fueled effort after salvation, after being rescued and brought to life. Yes, there is slow-growing obedience and holiness, but it is right up in the face of our failure, of our weakness. But however great and deep our sin is, God's grace is deeper and stronger If the gospel of grace isn't needed every year, every week, every day, every hour of our life, then we are dangerously close to denying the gospel of grace. A gospel of repentance, but not of salvation. This is the kind of full understanding that Apollos needed. He knew a ton He understood the Old Testament Jewish scriptures backward and forward. But the kind of discipleship that he perhaps needed was to know God through Christ by the power of his spirit. To know Christ in the power of his resurrection, not five tips for more persuasive preaching. He needed Jesus. But can you imagine, can you imagine some of our responses if we were sitting through at the synagogue a sermon like perhaps one of the ones that Apollos was preaching, where the the preacher never got to the cross, never got to the empty tomb, never got to the indwelling Holy Spirit. If it was a sermon of an incomplete Jesus or an incomplete gospel, what would our reaction perhaps be? Some of us might approach Apollos after his teaching and then just let him have it. Sir, preach Christ. Some of us might get home, maybe not even wait till we get home, in the middle of his preaching, pull out our phones and like post a, like a takedown blog post of this false teacher, Apollos. Some of us might just internally label him a false teacher and then avoid anything and everything that he ever spoke again, making sure that others did the same. But you want to know what Priscilla and Aquila did as they heard this man preach? They invited him over for dinner. Luke doesn't quite say those words, but I like to imagine what taking him aside means, is it wasn't just a three-minute, hey, you need to get your act together. They explain, they teach to him, this has got to be more than just a five-minute conversation. Wife and husband together take this well-educated and respected teacher then under their wing and likely tell him everything that they know about Jesus, everything that they learned over the past year and a half with Paul about what the scriptures were actually preparing and pointing toward and how they have been fulfilled in the person and the work and the ministry of Jesus. And I think a few words here are really informative. In verse 25, Luke says that Apollos was teaching accurately. But then Priscilla and Aquila in verse 26 explained to him the way of God more accurately. I think we like to think of, like, on the one hand, someone who is perfectly precise and an awesome teacher, or a false teacher and possibly heretic, on the other hand, with, like, no room in the middle. It's black or white. 
the best teacher ever or a heretic. When in reality, there is absolutely a category for accurate and more accurate. That in giving people the benefit of the doubt, we can patiently encourage them toward greater precision, toward deeper thoughtfulness, without having to then completely denounce anything and everything that they ever have or ever will speak or teach. And the flip side of that is Apollos, an MIT graduate who has now just walked off the stage of a killer TED Talk. And then he is approached by a uneducated blue-collar couple. And don't miss this in the first century, a woman coming to him to encourage him, to explain the scriptures. An uneducated blue-collar woman coming to an MIT grad. No pride from Apollos, no dismissiveness, no defensiveness, just humility. Reception to knowing Christ, to understanding the scriptures and knowing Christ and then that he might make him known. What a model for all of us. We will undoubtedly find ourselves in a position like Priscilla and Aquila of needing courage, of needing the, oh, that wasn't quite, I don't, I don't know if that's quite right, and needing to like press through the awkwardness and having the courage to go to a brother or a sister in gentleness, in kindness, but in courage to gently speak into others' lives and beliefs. And yet we will undoubtedly be on the Apollos side of the coin as well, perhaps more often. And we will also need his Christ-like humility to receive, to receive correction, to receive teaching, to be taught by and shaped by the community of Christ's body. Will our shared baptism in Jesus unite us in love and in unity, in love for one another when it matters? In moments where Jesus is actually needed for our relationships, not just depending on our like interpersonal communication skills or our tips for conflict resolution. The same kind of things that your HR department can give you or us as a church. Those are helpful. Will the Spirit of God and the blood of Christ, though, be the thing, the binding agent that will push through conflict, that will push through disagreement, that will cultivate humility, courage, conviction, and gentleness? Well, Priscilla and Aquila, after they have taught him, they send him off to Corinth, Achaia, in verse 27, is the region where Corinth is, just like Ephesus is in Asia. Corinth is in Achaia. And there, he preaches powerfully. His newfound, fuller understanding of Christ and of his gospel of salvation has now unleashed him. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Amen. Their ministries, Paul's or Apollos's, were not about them, about their fame, about their reputation, but about Christ crucified and his salvation through grace. Apollos needed a fuller understanding of the gospel. And now, we'll finally settle 
really into Ephesus when Paul arrives and meets some folks who need not just a fuller understanding, but a fuller life. That's not to say that Apollos did not also receive a fuller life, and these guys don't also need a fuller understanding, but let's just get after it here. A fuller life. In chapter 19, while Apollos is now in Corinth, Paul then arrives in Ephesus and finds some disciples. Initially, we think this means disciples of Jesus, but I think actually that's not the case. He asks them in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. So you can see why I said we've got actually, I think, two parallel similar stories here. That of an incomplete understanding, an incomplete following of Jesus. These are disciples of John the Baptist. I I don't think we fully realize how big of a deal John the Baptist really and actually was. He gets, I think, as far as like word count goes, about the same, we think subconsciously, or even if we're actually doing the word count, he gets about the same word count as many other characters in the gospel narratives. So maybe he's just kind of one of many characters. I think he is early along in the, in the gospel account, so we're like, right, let's get going. Let's get to Jesus. So we're kind of ready to kind of push through the whole John the Baptist narratives. But John the Baptist was a huge deal. Matthew, in his gospel account, says that all of Jerusalem and the entire region of Judea was going out to hear him preach. I, I know that Matthew here is likely being a little hyperbolic, but I don't think it's too far-fetched that he wants us to kind of imagine like an I am legend, empty streets, uh, ghost town of Jerusalem when John the Baptist is out preaching. It's like Billy Graham on lots of steroids. Many, like the, anybody in earshot, anybody that was worth in a day or two's uh, walk of John preaching would go to hear him. He was the closest thing to like a TMZ celebrity in hundreds of years in the region. And people were apparently coming and going and learning and being discipled by him, just like they would later do with Jesus. His disciples and his teaching had spread a long, long way, and John was a huge, huge deal. And so here in Turkey, Paul finds some of John's disciples, who again had come to God with good intentions of repentance and obedience, but, and I think when they say that they had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, I don't think that they mean that they'd never heard that there was a Spirit of God. Uh, surely they were aware of much of the Old Testament. Surely they were, they were aware of prophecies of the coming Spirit in places like Ezekiel 36 and Joel 2 and Jeremiah 31. But likely that they had not yet heard what they're meaning, that they had not yet heard that the Spirit had actually come, that, that there was a Holy Spirit here and active amongst his people. They didn't know yet about Pentecost in Jerusalem from Acts chapter 2. They hadn't been washed by the Spirit like Jeremiah 31 promised. They had not yet been made alive by the Spirit like Ezekiel 36 had promised. They had not yet received power by the Spirit like Joel 2 had promised, or even they had not yet been born again as Jesus had promised in John chapter 3. They were just like Cornelius, or other God-fearers in Acts, who were, to put it in like really simplistic or crude terms, these were people who were still stuck in the Old Testament. 
They were looking forward to the Messiah and who were still approaching God in all the old ways, but the old ways had now passed. As we saw saw Paul preach in Athens in chapter 6, the time of ignorance was now over. Jesus came on the scene and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door, Jesus said. He is saying that if you want to know God, you must come through my death and my resurrection for cleansing. No more temple stuff, for I am making a new temple. Jesus promised to send the Spirit that his people might then also not just be forgiven, might not just be justified and be declared right before God, but that they might be sanctified, fully washed, that they might be wrapped up more and more into the very life of God who would make them like Christ. These disciples of John were stuck in the past. They were stuck in an existence that David and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and John the Baptist could only dream about. An existence, Christian, that is now yours in the Spirit. An existence right now that the prophets could have only dared to dream about. An existence of spiritual life of ability to choose what is pleasing to the Lord, of power to find contentment in the Lord despite suffering or loss, of power to find joy in the very intimate and felt experience knowing of God. Paul tells them of Jesus here in Ephesus. Maybe he even reminded these disciples of John of John's own words when John preached, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Perhaps Paul was reminding them, hey, that baptism of John is now over and past. The baptism of Jesus, of true spiritual washing, of rebirth has now come. And their response is all in. Like Apollos, they just needed to hear of Christ and the power of his resurrection, and they were ready to completely and utterly alter the course and the direction of their entire life. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, Luke tells us. This scene very much reminds me of what Mark Dever says about the decision to follow Jesus. The decision to follow Jesus, it is costly, so consider it carefully. It is urgent, so make it soon. It is worth it, so you will never regret it. These folks considered all of these things, and they said, I am all in. Consider my life to be Jesus's. Consider his death to be for me. I'm in. In verse 6, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, just like Acts 2 in Jerusalem, just like in Acts 8 with the Samaritans, just like in Acts 10 on the first Gentiles in Israel, and now here in Acts 19, the Spirit has fallen here now on the nations. And we should be very careful to prescribe what we read in Acts to be normative or what we should expect to be our own experience. Some have created an entire theology of a so-called second baptism of the Spirit, A second baptism that now gives you the ability and the gift of tongues, all because of a couple of unclear passages in Acts. 
in the midst of a monumental turning of the page in salvation history. But the problem is, is that these disciples, they hadn't even heard of a first baptism of Jesus. They didn't know about Jesus's baptism, of the power and the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of John was actually not a Christian baptism. Until Jesus was baptized there, then Christians are united to that baptism, to Jesus's. These disciples here, they did not need a second baptism of the Spirit. They needed a first one. But we should also be careful to assume that when someone gets baptized, they should then immediately start speaking in tongues. For one thing, remember from Acts 2 what tongues actually were. They were languages. Languages in Acts 2 that people could now speak and understand one another. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, also speaks in tongues, or teaches about speaking in tongues. And while Paul and Luke, here in Acts, are using the same word, tongues, they are almost certainly talking about two different things. The languages in Acts 2 is a public language where everyone can understand so that Christ might be proclaimed clearly. The Corinthian languages is, or Corinthian tongues that Paul is addressing, is something that Paul is encouraging people to do privately or only done in public when there is an interpreter. There are no interpreters needed in Acts 2 or here in Acts 19 because I think that's exactly the point, that they are all able to understand one another. They are all proclaiming Christ to each other and to those around them. The prayer tongues in Corinth wouldn't have been a strange or unexpected thing, though. For most of us in the, in the modern West, certainly outside of certain Christian circles, if some visitor off of the street saw someone praying or speaking in tongues in some kind of language that they didn't understand, that visitor would likely think that that person who is speaking in tongues had just forgotten to take their medication that, that day. But if some Corinthian visitor came into the church gathering at Corinth, they would think, oh, I know this. I know what's going on here. These are the same kind of ecstatic prayer languages that we all do up on the hill in the temple of Aphrodite. I did that yesterday. Paul wants an outsider in 1 Corinthians. Paul wants an outsider to know that this isn't just the same old thing. It's not just the same old ecstatic prayer languages, but now just to a new popped up Jewish God who's showing himself to be kind of cool and powerful, but that this is actually the power of Jesus. Tongues, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 22, are a sign not for believers, but a sign for unbelievers. And so perhaps for a time, God is sanctifying and transforming an already common and prevalent spiritual practice in the first century Greco-Roman world. But another reason to think that this, isn't, this is something actually unique here for the time is that Luke only tells us about tongues in just a very few specific and important times. Throughout Acts, Luke seems to be tracing what Jesus said would happen, that his people would make disciples in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth, say, Turkey. Luke doesn't tell us that as soon as people in Corinth or Galatia or Pisidian Antioch or Thessalonica, whenever those people come to faith in Christ and are baptizing, they all start speaking in tongues. 
likely this wasn't a normative experience for people who had come to faith in Christ, but was actually a demonstrable, explanatory sign of God's power and presence in a new frontier, a new way, that he was making his people into the temple of his presence all over the world. Even verse 7 here in chapter 19 seems to hint that Luke wants us to catch the new creation of it all. These men who were speaking in tongues and prophesying, how many of them were there? Luke says, there were about 12 men in all. About? Like, you couldn't just count them? Why not tell us that there were 10 or 11 or 13 or 14? Like, just a guess? No, just like Jesus reconstituted and remade the 12 tribes of Israel by then regathering unto himself 12 apostles, 12 disciples, so here Luke wants us to understand the new gathering of a new people of God to himself. Joel 2 is happening, where the Spirit falls on people of all flesh, unto the nations, even in Ephesus, the city of Artemis. These are a newly made people in a newly made temple of God where his praises are spoken and sung no matter their language, no matter their ethnicity. But even if tongues or prophecy may be a time-specific event, and just to remind you from Clint's sermon in Acts 13, there is certainly a case to be made for ongoing prophecy. We can reshare some good resources for you in that if you're interested. But even if these were time-specific events. That doesn't mean that a spiritual life, a spirit-filled life now for us as Christians, for you as a Christian, is now boring. Man, I wish we could have just all lived in the first century when all this awesome stuff was happening. Too bad we have to now live in 2021 where being a Christian is just really boring. No. What are the fruits of someone being filled with the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You want to see someone who has been transformed by Jesus, who is becoming more transformed by Jesus? It's more often that the faithful, unassuming, and selfless folks who are trying to seek to harness the power of the Spirit for the good of others, for the good in the building up of the church, they are really being filled by the Spirit, perhaps more so than those who are trying to harness the power of the Spirit for themselves, for some sort of mind-blowing power to be experienced for me. In the book of Acts, When someone is full of the Spirit, what do they do? How do they live? Do they perform mighty and powerful miracles? Sometimes. Sometimes. More often, though, people who are full of the Spirit, they're more like people like the first deacons in Acts 6, who being full of the Spirit, then went and served marginalized widows' food. That's what being full of the Spirit empowered them to do. Stephen, full of the Spirit in Acts 7, explained the Bible. He preached Christ. Barnabas, being full of the Spirit in Acts 11, 
What? For what reason? That he might encourage people. That he might persuasively share the gospel with people. Last week, we sent out Michael, Michael and Leah Flowers out of here. You want to see evidence of a spirit-filled life? What did Leah Flowers say up right here seven days ago? She said that she, a few years ago, thought that the church existed to serve her, but in the past few years, she didn't use this language, but I'm going to use it for her, now being more filled by the Spirit, being transformed by the Spirit in her life, trusting in Christ and being more and more conformed into His image. What does a Spirit-filled life look like for Leah Flowers? Not that the church exists to serve her, but that she might serve the church for the good of Christ's name and the good of her neighbor, for the good of you all. That's someone who has come to a fuller understanding of the gospel and a fuller life in the gospel, full of the Holy Spirit of God. Are you sitting on the periphery of this church? It has certainly been a difficult, now over a year, a difficult year to get involved into any church, this one included. But as things are opening up and summer is upon us, initiate. Meet with one another. Text, call, email. Get a weekly Bible reading with one another, coffee date on the calendar. Just read the Bible with one another. Serve one another. Care for one another. Know Jesus together. Pray for and with one another. Being filled more and more by the Spirit, trusting in the gospel with a fuller understanding of Jesus' grace and salvation to you. Serve one another. Married folks, start regularly and ongoingly. Have over the single folks in your GCs around your kitchen tables and on your TV couches, that we might live life together, living our lives with each other in mind, not because God will now finally be happy with you if you do these things. But this is the life of joy and contentment and fullness that God has actually created you for, a full life that is dying to self and living for Christ and for the good of others, Whoever finds his life, Jesus says, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Preaching this kind of spirit-filled, baptized life into Christ is a ministry that Paul will continue in Ephesus in this gigantic city. We read in verse 10, for two years he was preaching this gospel. This will be the longest place that Paul will stay in any of his three missionary journeys, where three Sundays from now, uh, we will finally see Paul depart from this city. We've got three more weeks of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and when he departs, the Christians there will send him off with weeping, with hugging, with sorrow, but we're not there yet. He is just starting to preach, he is just starting to challenge, just starting to confront and boy, will the gospel of Jesus that Paul will preach confront. Read the rest of chapter 19 this week and come for the riot on Sunday. There's a big old riot coming.
because of this gospel that transforms, cultivates, brings life, and fills. But filling actually pushes things out, and the Ephesians don't like it. We don't like it either. Let's get ready. But let's pray that God would continue to fill us this week and prepare us for the next. Our Father, we are thankful for your faithfulness to us, that you have committed yourself, O triune God, to our salvation, to our joy, to our contentment, that you are more committed to these things, to our holiness even, than even we are. Holy Spirit, we pray that you might, by your power, by your um, transformative power, fill us. Now being sealed and reborn by your Spirit, we pray that you might ongoingly fill us, that we might find greater joy, find greater contentment, find greater uh, initiative and kindness and self-sacrifice for the good of others. Might you use us, might you build us up as a church in love and in unity for our good and for the glory of the name of Christ to be made known in this city and to the nations, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.